There's no way to hire your way out of this shortage. Everybody needs to hire. Where are you going to get your radiologist from when everybody's trying to hire the same person? You're going to have to find really a technological solution to try to get yourself out of the hole. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Dr. John Stewart. John Stewart is a practicing radiologist and the CEO of Scripter Software. He is a former NASA engineer who earned a PhD in biomedical engineering and has developed various software programs, including web-based PACs, 3D computer modeling systems for anatomy, early computer-assisted diagnostic systems for aneurysms, and many others. He was also the co-PI on an RO1 NIH grant while a med student and trained in diagnostic radiology at the Mayo Clinic. He is the chief architect of the software program Rscriptor, which is licensed through the Scripter Software Company, and is used by radiologists nationwide to increase productivity and reduce radiologist burnout. I am delighted to have you on the show, Dr. Stewart. You have a very interesting you know, career journey to radiology, but then haven't been sitting still and have been using both the radiology platform to, to launch also an entrepreneurial career, which has been really interesting and a different path than many we feature on the show. So really, I think it's an interesting path for people to hear about how you've managed to build a company, uh, manage and grow a company all while clinically practicing daily. So it's really great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. And uh, I've listened to your podcast for a while now and really enjoyed it. So hopefully our session will hold up to your other sessions. <laughs> uh, no doubt, no doubt. But um, so tell me, you were uh, an aerospace engineer in the early 90s at NASA, which is crazy. How did you end up there? What were you doing for them? Yeah, so I had done a mechanical engineering undergraduate. And like a lot of people who go into graduate school, at the time when I finished my bachelor's program, I didn't get a job. I couldn't find the job that I wanted. I could have probably found just an ordinary engineering job, but I was really looking to do robotics with the idea in my head that I would be doing, you know, design of prosthetic limbs or exoskeletons for, you know, people who are paralyzed. But, you know, even at that time, I had in my mind that I wanted to do something to help people. But I couldn't find the job really that I wanted. And the professors at the university were saying, you know, you should consider doing a master's. You can do your research at NASA. It's going to be a great experience for you. So I I decided to do that. So um, I went for my master's in mechanical engineering and did my research at NASA Langley Research Center. And that's kind of how I got started down that path of doing aerospace engineering. When I finished my master's, they asked me to stay on and work there. So that's how I ended up working there for a few years. What kind of stuff were they working on at the time? So when I did my master's, I was really working on a, I, I jumped into a really interesting project. This is in the late 80s, actually, when I did my master's. And there was a project going on where they were trying to design a, a nose cone for a Mars entry vehicle for a manned mission to Mars. So even back then, everybody, people were talking about a manned mission to Mars. Now it's really hot, but it is kind of the way things go. It's things cycle, it seems like all the time. And now you're starting to hear not as much about a manned mission to Mars. And then probably 10 years now, it's going to be red hot again. But that's kind of how it goes. And back then it was hot. And so 
I did my master's research on designing a nose cone for that manned missions uh, for an entry vehicle. Very cool. So how did that prepare you for a career in medicine? You know, what, what then decided to change? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, that NASA experience prepared me for medicine, really, other than uh, I think the engineering education was a good preparation for medicine in that you learn to be very analytical. And I still use those skills, you know, today as a radiologist, you know, analyzing, trying to put together the picture of what's going on and what's the solution, what's the best next steps. So that was a really useful engineering education for that purpose. But probably more importantly was for my research that I subsequently did in the years that followed. You know, when I first went to NASA, I wasn't a very good programmer. You know, we had to take programming classes for engineering, but, you know, we were using uh, Fortran programming at the time and we eventually switched to C and C++. But at that time, it wasn't very good. And but you jumped right into it and started doing uh, research in that area. We were doing I was in a branch called computational fluid dynamics. And we were in a what's called the geo lab, where we designed 3D models of uh, aircraft and spacecraft so that they could be tested on the computer. That was a really new thing back then. Back Before that, everything was tested in wind tunnels. And computers were just getting powerful enough where you could actually test aircraft or flight characteristics and spacecraft in uh, on the computer entirely. And then they would try to match that to the wind tunnel testing. And we got very good matching. Now everything's done by computer design and, and they hardly do any wind tunnel testing any longer. But back then it was a new thing. So the biggest advantage I got for my subsequent research was I learned how to program really well. And more importantly, I learned how to do 3D modeling so I could design, I could do things in 3D using like tiny triangles to represent surfaces and shapes. And I wrote software to analyze shapes for curvature and so forth. Stuff that's real important in aircraft design, but I subsequently used it in my research for medicine. Amazing. Amazing. So then where'd you go for med school? So I went at the time, it was called Medical College of Virginia. Now they've adopted the uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, but that was in Richmond. I started actually as just a medical student, but I was so interested in research. I, after the first year, I immediately converted to the MD-PhD program. And that was a great experience. I mean, as a great university and a great place to uh, do research. I worked mainly with neurosurgeons at the time. Bill brought us there, was my uh, mentor. And, you know, they didn't necessarily understand what I was doing, but I was trying to help them with what they were doing. And ultimately, my PhD project was, so I, I wrote software to do 3D modeling from anatomy. So I would get MRI scans and I could convert them to 3D models. And then I came up with this measures of curvature on those models to try to find things. So for my PhD project, I was trying to find aneurysms on MRA images. And it was kind of analogous to machine learning at the time. There wasn't a whole lot of um, neural networks and so forth were new. So you really couldn't do realistically a lot of um, machine learning back then. But I came up with the idea, and it's not my idea, but came up with the idea of using multiple linear regression and back substitution. So it's a statistical technique. But what I would do is on my 3D modeling software that I wrote, I would highlight where the aneurysm was. I say, this is what an aneurysm looks like. And everything else is not aneurysm. And then I would train the software to find those aneurysms and then color the models 
according to how uh, accurate it was uh, finding aneurysms. And it worked reasonably well just using a statistical techniques. Through that process, you know, I had to do a lot of work, like a lot of background work. So there's a lot of issues back then that you had to solve and there was nobody's going to solve them for you. So I had to solve them. Like the first fundamental issue was you could not get a series of images from the scanner to my computer where I needed them to do the data analysis. They were like, well, I said, can you just FTP them, you know, using a file transfer protocol, just FTP them to me. No, we don't. There's no way to do that. They said, we can give you on this big magnetic disc, which of course was not going to work. I had no way to read that. Or we could do a DICOM transfer. Back then, DICOM was in existence, so we could use that. So I had to could download a DICOM server, get it up and running. Then I could get images. And then I realized that, hey, if I can get images from the scanner, why don't I convert those to JPEG and then write a, a dynamic web pages so their uh, neurosurgeons can look at images from home? So this is back in the early 90s. You know, this that's a common thing now, but back then it wasn't common. But we were able to have the scanner just continually send MRI or CT images to a computer, just a regular ordinary computer. It would throw out anything that wasn't neurosurgery related and it would keep everything else. And then, you know, residents in the middle of the night, they call the neurosurgeon and say, hey, we have a case we might have to deal with. Before they had to drive in, look at the case, decide what they want to do. Now they were able to look at it at home on a browser. So that was a big change for them. Uh, but anyway, that I had to write all the pieces kind of to get up to the point where I could actually do the research I wanted to do. It's such a, a great story. And it's such a helpful reminder to, you know, today's residents who might be similar to you. Maybe they're interested in research, want to develop algorithms or, you know, whatever it might be. The amount of new technologies that have been built in the last 20 years to now enable people to just, you know, run a machine learning algorithm across a million images and come up with some new technique. So much of that has been developed brick by brick over the past 20 years. And it's really awesome to hear how you were able to, you know, you could invent a lot on your own back then. You could do the different pieces together. So early stages of that is is very unique. At the time, were you thinking you'd go into neurosurgery since you were hanging out with the neurosurgeons? Yeah, I think all of us, you know, the whole neurosurgery department, the residents, myself, we all thought we were doing neurosurgery. And then, you know, so I finished my research and way the way the MD PhD program works is you do your, you know, book work the first two years, then you do your PhD in the middle. Once you finish your PhD, you go back into the clinical rotations. And I went into clinical rotations that did neurosurgery with all these friends of mine. They're all the residents and stuff that I had been working with for years. And the, the staff who I all love, you know, I loved working with them as well. And I just found that, you know, neurosurgery is interesting in the middle 15 minutes of the procedure where you're actually getting to do stuff. But the majority of it is opening and closing and managing patients and all that. And I just did not enjoy that part of it. I have a fairly short attention span and it was just, it's, it's several hours long procedures in the OR and I had been doing so much with digital data and computers that I just decided that it made a lot more sense to do radiology at that point. So I, I kind of switched and, and that was a difficult discussion with my advisor who was, you know, nicest guy ever. He was, uh, you know, disappointed, but he was very understanding that that's kind of what I wanted to do for my life research wise. So you, you pivot to radiology, which based on everything you've described earlier in your career, seems like a good fit, merging a lot of your interests 
you finish residency and then what's your first job? Where, where do you go next? So then I, um, my wife, her father was in the air force. So she lived all over the world. And one of the favorite places she lived was in North Carolina. And, uh, we found a friend of ours who, um, was working in North Carolina and said they had a job opening. So I said, great, I'd love to take that job. And so he, he was also from the Mayo Clinic. They had a job opening. So I took that job and started working in private practice at Triad Radiology. And that was a great job. Uh, I enjoyed working there. I worked there for seven years. And what are the things that drove you out of that private practice job? You, you said you were there for a long time, but then eventually you found your way into teleradiology. What was kind of the, the draw, the appeal there? Yeah, you know, Every practice, especially private practice, is a little different. Um, so the private practice at TRA, uh, which they uh, acknowledge is kind of a lifestyle practice, you know, kind of work how you want to work. It's okay if we make less money. Lifestyle is important to us. When I graduated from, um, when I finished my residency, two weeks after I finished my residency, I turned 40 because I had done a lot of these other things, you know, in, in between. So I was really pretty motivated on on earning an income and saving money and getting ready for retirement, which was coming up, you know, quicker than I wanted. But anyway, it became clear that I wasn't a good fit in there. It wasn't anything that they, you know, they were clear about the way their practice was. It just was, I wasn't a good fit. So I was looking for something where I could kind of control my income, kind of have more control over things than I had there, but I didn't want to move. You know, kids were, I have kids and they were all happy where they were. Wife was happy where we were. So I decided to look into teleradiology, and then that's how I found a teleradiology position. At that time, you know, this back, this was in 2011, 2012, something like that. There weren't, you know, the job market wasn't great. And so if you wanted to do teleradiology, really, it was working overnight. So that's what I took a job as a night ER radiologist in, in a large teleradiology practice. It's just so interesting how much the market has changed in just 10 years. I had a podcast guest, Dan Corbett, who works with private practices around the country. And what we were talking about was teleradiology for private practice. Basically, every private practice in the country now, groups of 15, 20, 25 people, will hire a teleradiologist now because they can't meet their demands and they'll integrate them into the, into the practice, whether they can be there locally or not. And it was all about strategies to do that. And so 10 years ago, the only teleradiology opportunity was nights, one week on, one week off. Now... You can be a teleradiologist, but, you know, read this, the mix you want and, you know, work daytime hours and it's just changed so much. Are you still doing nights today or has your teleradiology practice kind of changed along with that market dynamic? Yeah. So this was about 10 years ago or 11 years ago when I started doing teleradiology. And like I said, at that time, there weren't a lot of jobs and that persisted for several years. So you really could not easily change jobs um, at that time. And then just like three or four years ago, it just radically changed. All of a sudden there was a, you know, the shortage of radiologists really became apparent. And unfortunately, and it's something that I don't think everybody in radiology entirely realizes, but I think it's called the American Academy of Medical Schools or something like that. They put out a report periodically about, well, about all physicians. And they show in that report that the shortage of radiologists is not going to get better. In fact, it's going to get worse and probably peak between five and 10 years from now. So the shortage that you see now is a shortage that's going to get worse than it is now, which is hard to imagine because it's quite severe now. 
but anyway, at that time, you know, if you wanted to do teleradiology, it was overnight. That was really the option. Or then it kind of evolved to, well, you can do evenings maybe if you want. And only a couple of years ago, you started seeing daytime teleradiology. So because there were a lot of jobs a few years ago, like, you know, two or three years ago, I switched to another teleradiology company that had better pay. The, the original one I started with, the pay is quite low. And that that group was great, but they didn't have any daytime teleradiology. And then I found a daytime teleradiology one um, at Renaissance Imaging in California. And they have this great system where it's it's almost like time zone arbitrage. You know, you know, people for a long time have been using Hawaii as kind of a place where you can read in the evening and you're covering nights. They had the idea, well, I'm, I don't know if it was their idea or not, but it, anyway, um, the idea there was that no, let's start the radiologist early in the morning. So I start at 5 a.m. And, and we cover places in California and Hawaii. So we're going the opposite way. And, and we're covering starting at 2 a.m. in California and much earlier in Hawaii. And so that was perfect. I, I, I don't mind getting up early. So I started doing that and it's been great. The, the group is great and the job is great. Be able to work during the days is a complete game changer. You know, working overnights gets old, you know, and but, you know, that's what was available. So that's what I did. Tell us a little bit about where the initial seeds of entrepreneurship were planted. Well, it's it's funny, you know, I always, even in college, I always had the idea I wanted to start my own business. But, you know, you're kind of reading around what kind of business do I start? You know, you're not thinking radiology related business at all. And you don't know how to start a business. You know, I never, I was an engineer. I wasn't a business major. I didn't know how to start a business. But I had this unusual opportunity. While I was in medical school, um, web pages were just becoming big. Everybody, every company wanted a web page, and they all needed a place to host them. And I found a company that I was just using, playing around with uh, web pages and hosting. And they would give you an account, and it cost me twenty five dollars a month, I think, at the time for the account. And if I wanted to associate a new domain name with that account, which you would need to do for these companies that were wanting to host, they would just charge you a dollar. So I'm like going, well, okay, I can get these new companies that only cost me a dollar and I could charge them the going rate, which is about $25 a month. So I would basically do almost nothing. And I just started, I had a guy, a friend of mine who was doing webpage designs. He had a company and everything. And I would just go to him and I was just basically his guy. You know, when they had a new one to host, I would get it, get it set up, talk with them, get it hosted. And I built that up as my first company that I started. And that kind of, I guess that taught me that it wasn't hard to start a company. There was nothing challenge, you know, overly challenging about it. I was, you know, you have this mind that's going to be this big thing and very difficult and got to get all these lawyers and accounts and everything. And it was just so simple to do. It was a small scale thing. I didn't have a lot of time. I was in medical school, you know, at the time. So I didn't have a lot of time to do it, but it was fun. It was a first project. And when I started my internship, when I really wouldn't have time to do anything, I sold that company at that time. So the itch is scratched. You realize, okay, this is a real thing. I like it. I can do it. Eventually you realize I'm going to start something in radiology. What was your first radiology startup? Well, the first startup I was involved in um, was actually, you know, a full-blown startup where we were trying to get angel investors and stuff. So again, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, I had developed a lot of software. I had, you know, I had a, a dot-com server I'd got working was tested. I had a web-based interface for a PAX. 
Um, I had developed 3D computer software and then had developed the start of a computer-aided assisted diagnosis software. So we had like a suite of programs and I kind of divided up and made like a suite of, of programs that we could sell, you know, as a service line or a, a program line of software and got the interest of a company in Virginia who said, well, let's see if we can get angel investors and, you know, get this going. So I got all the the software organized, got ready. We didn't have any customers at the time. That was one of the things I learned. You really need to have customers in order to get you know, real interest in angel investors. But at that time, I didn't know that. But anyway, we scheduled the very first meeting for the angel investors was scheduled down in Miami. And that flight had to be rescheduled because of the terrorist attack in 2011. You can imagine what happened to angel investing after that occurred. There was no interest at that time. Nobody knew what was going on what was going to happen. I went to, I don't know, probably six or seven angel investing meetings at that time and was told by, you know, the CFO that those rooms would have been filled, you know, months earlier there. We, we were talking to like one person oftentimes or two people. It was just like a, it became clear it was not going to fly, you know, not necessarily due to anything that we did, but it just was not going to fly. And we just gave up after a short period that that wasn't going to work. And the problem I had also is I was moving on to internship and residency and, and I was going to be more in a director role at that point, because I wasn't going to give up on that, what I wanted to do to become a radiologist. I still wanted to do those steps. So you tried pitching angels while you were in training? Yeah, I was actually an intern and I was using my vacation days to go down and pitch as an angel, to angel investors. Yeah, that's a tough, it's funny. I, I mean, I haven't done a lot of angel investing, but I've raised money. And so I know what that's like. And I don't know if I would invest in an intern because now I know, you know, how all consuming, you know, both jobs are right. The job of startup owner and, you know, startup employee founder, and then also the job of, you know, radiology resident. I think both are about two X full-time jobs. So doing both of them at the same time might not work. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I, I would never invest in somebody who came to me with that idea. But the concept was, of course, that we would be hiring, you know, uh, people to manage, do all that. And I'd be kind of the idea guy more than anything. Which, yeah, maybe that makes sense. So, okay, so but you learned your lesson. And through these experiences, eventually, you're out in practice. And, you know, tell me a little bit about you know, our scripter, the software that you've developed and you kind of bring us to the beginning. Like, how did you come up with the idea? Like, what was that sort of initial getting started moment like? Well, you know, I was kicking around the idea for a while. You know, when I started my training, we were doing voice transcription with transcriptionists. And when I started, first started at TRA, we were still doing that. And then, of course, everybody was switching over to uh, voice recognition. And when we switched to voice recognition, you know, I don't think it's acknowledged very much by the hospitals or whoever, but you take a real hit when you switch to voice recognition because you become the radiologist and the transcriptionist. And that slows you down quite a bit. And one of the things that dawned on me is that, you know, I was just kind of tossing around these ideas that there's got to be a better way to do this. And um, kind of had my idea that, you know, I should be able to say whatever I want and just have this text put into the report. Why, why do I have to actually manage that process? I mean, that's what the transcriptionist did for us. And then just leave anything that's normal in the report template, just like it was. When you're working in private practice, you know, there's not a real hard push, at least at that time, we weren't overwhelmed with cases the way we are now. 
there wasn't a hard push to try to be much more productive than you were. So I just kind of had it in my back of my mind. I never really did anything when I started writing the code. But then when I took the teleradiology position, I saw, you know, I really got to try this and get this working. This wasn't an idea of starting a company. I just wanted it for myself. I just was trying to get something to be more efficient. So I started writing the code and I wasn't sure if I could get it to work, you know, how well I could get the NLP engine to do what I wanted to do. But I worked at it. And I think because of the fact I'm a radiologist and a programmer, I could make that work a lot faster than if you're if you're a radiologist trying to work with programmers. It's just so inefficient to work that way. But because I was one and the same, I was able to make really fast progress on that. And within a year, I had it working pretty well to the point that I was even surprised how well it worked. And then the teleradiology practice I was working at kind of got noticed. You know, I was trying to make just high quality reports. And I wanted to focus my attention on the images and not be distracted by the dictation software. And it was working. The reports were noticeably better than, I guess, some of my colleagues. And I was generating large numbers of those reports without making mistakes. And so they kind of took interest. And then I said, well, I'm using the software I wrote. And then they wanted to see demos. So I showed it to them. And I, I literally did nine demonstrations to them. And they finally said, we want to license it. So then it was a scramble to get a company started, which I had done before, so I knew how to do that. So we started a company and then started licensing the software. So we immediately from day one had a huge client, which was obviously very helpful. If you can start a company that way, where you immediately have a large client, that's certainly a way to, good way to launch the company. And then we've been going ever since like that. And we add been adding uh, practices or individual radiologists ever since. So... Tell me a little bit more about the product. Like what's different about, you know, just using kind of Fluency or, or PowerScribe out of the box? Yeah, so Fluency and PowerScribe, you know, out of the box provide voice to text. And you have to develop all the, the templates yourself, all the report templates. And then when you dictate and try to use those templates, you have to continually look away from the images at the dictation inter interface, find your place in that report to insert that text insert it, then look back at the images. And I tried doing that for a couple shifts um, when I first started using PowerScribe at the time. And it is so fatiguing. And people do that still all the time. I can't, I don't understand how they can do that. It's so fatiguing to continually be looking back and forth like that. So that was the first goal of the software is I want to do structured reporting, but I don't ever want to look at the dictation window while I'm dictating. And so that's what we developed. And, and PowerScript had something at the time and still does uh, in their software that's supposed to do that. But I never found a person who used it and I couldn't get it to work you know, well enough to use it. So that was the first thing that we got working and that worked really well. And then I think the two additional things since you know, then it's been under development constantly over 10 years and we're continually putting out new releases. The two big additions we made since then that are differentiators are we included a knowledge base that's over 1300 pages. So we have all the ACR follow-up recommendations and an easy you know, question answer uh, interface, or, and then we added, uh, and well, in addition to that in the knowledge base, we have the LIRADs, ORADs, all these RAD systems for scoring different findings. Um, we have the trauma protocol or the trauma uh, lookup for you know what grade is the trauma. And then we even have anatomy, uh, cross-sectional anatomy labeled uh, images and so forth. So that knowledge base is really helpful. And, and radiologists use that all the time, mainly for those ACR uh, follow-up recommendations. 
And then the last thing we recently just added, I think about a year ago, is what we call smart macros. So what the smart macros do is you basically say a finding, like say you're talking about an ETT tube. Normally you'd have to dictate, you know, how high is that above the crina? Doesn't need to be advanced. Doesn't need to be pulled back. What the smart macros do is they just say ETT and then how high it is above the crina. And the software takes care of saying, adding the impression, dictating the finding, the impression, everything, just based upon the number you use. The same is true like for, you know, say an ovarian cyst. It looks at the age of the patient, how big is the cyst, and then puts in the proper finding statement, impression statement, and follow-up recommendation, just with a simple like three-word statement. And so those two things are kind of things that we, we added, which are not, they don't exist in any other software that I know of that are directly linked the way that we've directly linked them. Very clever. So if a radiologist is using this software, you know, presumably their practice also has PowerScribe or, or whatever. So how does it work? It's within PowerScribe or it's separate and then it populates into PowerScribe? Yeah, what we wanted to do is we wanted to be dictation software agnostic. We wanted the software to work with whatever dictation system you're using. So the idea I came up with is, well, what's uniform? You know, I didn't want to have to go to PowerScribe and say, hey, can I get your API? And when they change their API, and like, it's just a lot of work to try to integrate directly with any of the dictation software. So the idea I came up with is, let's just use window copy paste. So what you do is you just dictate, you know, without looking at your dictation software, you're just dictating the findings. We insert a little header at the top that says this is the exam type. And so it knows what template to use. Then you just dictate your findings in any order and you push a button. When you push that button to say, create the report, what it does is it grabs using a copy. It copies that dictation, brings it into the clipboard, rewrites the final report and pastes it right back in your dictation window. And that process takes about one second. And so it's all being done on your computer. It's not sending reports out over the internet or anything. And it works with any dictation software because all of them allow copy paste. So that simple mechanism allows us to work with PowerScribe and Modal, any of the major dictation software companies you can use with our software. Clever. And I think a really good example for entrepreneurs to think about is it's so hard to get a big company to partner with you that if your business plan is to figure out how to partner with a big company, you need a new business plan in nine times out of 10. And so you know, coming up with with scrappy ways to get started is is critical. Tell me a little bit about how you funded the business. Was it was it just through this first customer gave you enough money to to get going? Did you guys ever put money into it? Yeah, you know, as you probably know, when you start a business, if you're the primary person, which I was, you know, I could write the code. I didn't need to hire anybody. I was a radiologist, so I didn't need radiology input for the the expertise. Um, I knew pretty much how to do it. Um, so I didn't really need anybody. The trick was you have to be willing to just jump in and do it. You know, like you don't know what you don't know until you get in there and get going. But to start the company, you know, it's less than a thousand dollars probably. I mean, it wasn't a big expense to start the company. And then I didn't hire anybody. I just worked on, I worked on it myself. We did hire some people to do some specialized server programming, but by and large, if I need expertise, I just hire it on a part-time basis. We did that at the initial stages um, and got the servers part up and running. Um, and then we've just been basically running it ourselves without any help. And so no more money went into it from that point. It's all been bootstrapped. And you say we, is, is we just you or do you have someone else working on the business with you? 
So I do all the technical and software development and I interface with the radiologist because I would, would rather do that than try to have a salesperson do that. Um, and I think the radiologists appreciate that since I speak their language. But the business side of it, which is the side that I don't necessarily run, I have a, a partner who does a lot of the business stuff. Amazing. It sounds like you found some product market fit among these teleradiology practices. Is is that where you seem to be finding the most traction? Like, how are you going about growing? I remember you said you doubled in size in just the last year, which is, you know, amazing for a company that's 10 years old. That's, it sounds like you're really hitting your stride. You know, how are you going about finding customers who, who end up being the right types of customers for you guys? Yeah, we've mostly done uh, word of mouth. And we're starting to, you know, try to get more exposure on social media. And we have a YouTube, you know, site trying to show how it works and what it does. And we put our tutorials on there so people can see how you can get started if you want. It's pretty simple. The traction we've got is mainly through teleradiology practices. And I believe the reason is because, you know, those are more business savvy people, uh, not only running the practices, but also the radiologists, I think, in those practices, a lot of them, like me, were trying to find ways to, you know, be more productive, have more control over your income, really run a, almost an individual radiology practice, so to speak. And those people recognize that. And I think if you look at the numbers, even a tiny amount of productivity increase uh, or quality increase can make a, a big difference in your practice. So because the radiologist's income is high, if you change just even 1% and you do the, do the math, you're talking about a large amount of money. And with our software, we, you know, we commonly kind of, kind of the median amount is around 20% increase in productivity. So if, if you're paid per case and you do that math and you say, wait a minute, I can make 20% more a month uh, if I do this. And you say, yeah, give it a try. It's, you know, it doesn't cost anything to try it. And even if they say only made 5%, that's a huge amount of money to a radiologist to just 5% increase. So that's where we got our traction. And, and I think the private practices where we've gotten a lot of traction is, I think there's some recognition, and this is you know over the last 10 years, that there is some value to doing structure reporting, which is kind of what our scripter specialty is, and doing uniform reports where your reports look the same no matter who dictated them. Now, the radiologist can say whatever they want in the reports. And so, you know, my gallbladder section may contain two sentences, whereas somebody else's may contain two paragraphs. That's okay. But the, the referring physicians know where to look in the reports. When I'm comparing to one of my colleagues, I know where to look in their report because their reports look like my reports. So there's a lot of value in standardization and, and we can do a lot of analytics. We generate analytics reports for the radiology practices. They can look at their volume and they can look at things like MIPS compliance, you know, how compliant are they on the MIPS requirements for the government? They can look at all kinds of things in our reports. So we've gotten traction there. But what's happened recently and why we've kind of really started to take off is because of the shortage of radiologists. So you would think, oh, because people want to be more productive. It's actually not that, although I think that's something that is important because, as we talked about, there's no way to hire your way out of this shortage. Everybody needs to hire, you know, where are you going to get your radiologist from when everybody's trying to hire the same person? You're going to have to find really a technological solution to try to get yourself out of the hole. And whether that's our script or some other software or a new pack system, whatever, 
you need to look at a technological solution of some kind. Um, but anyway, uh, the shortage of radiologists created a situation where the radiologists, just like me, were switching jobs. Now there's jobs available. There weren't jobs available when I first started. Now there are jobs available. When they switch jobs and they've been using our scripter for the last couple of years, they go to the new practice and say, well, I need to be able to use this software because I'm used to it and I like it and I'm productive with it. And that's what has made us grow uh, rapidly is just the fact that all these radiologists are switching to different practices and bringing our scripter with them. And also a testament to the quality uh, of the product. So what's your vision, you know, five years from now, what, what does uh, the company look like? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the, the purpose is obviously to get to a critical point where you hire on, you know, the people to, to, you know, kind of pour gasoline on the fire and try to make it grow faster. Um, I think we're getting to that point now where we certainly uh, have that capability. And so we'll we'll start uh, trying to grow uh, the company to add more capabilities and really kind of get our footprint larger in the radiology community, because I think we do have a really good product and we just need to get it out there. So that's kind of would be a five-year plan. I think longer than that, we really want to either get into a major dictation software system or we're going to just add dictation software to our scripter and just build it and just go from there and and kind of have a specialty system for radiology in, in particular. Beyond that, we'll probably start adding, you know, we have an R scripter that the whole concept of coming up with that name was that as we came up with new solutions for other specialties, like we, we could have a P scripter for pathology and ER scripter for ER, was that we start opening up once we have our kind of core technology bill, which we do, we'll start opening up and doing the same thing for other specialties. Awesome. This is an amazing story. And, you know, one of the reasons why I was especially excited to have you on, I think for so many people, entrepreneurship feels like a, I don't know, massive life choice, a binary risk, a mortgage the house, throw out the job kind of decision. I think you're really exemplary of a different path forward in entrepreneurship where, you know, you can solve a problem that you have. Turns out if you have that problem, probably other people have that problem to, you know, work on it on the side and build it uh, slowly, sensibly, brick by brick with, you know, sales and profits into the company. And and so here you are, you know, many years into your career, still having a thriving radiology career, but also you know, playing a, a really interesting role as the CEO and founder of an impactful technology startup. So I think this is a really helpful one for people to hear about. And I think it's an interesting space to watch. You find yourself, as you mentioned, with all the trends going on, you know, well positioned as the market unfolds. So I guess la last question for you, you know, what, what new skills have you had to develop being a CEO and a founder uh, and what advice would you give to some of the you know younger radiologists listening in, thinking about starting a company? Well, I think a, a couple of things. I think the the most important thing is that this is not complicated. The radiologists are incredibly smart. Any physician, you know, obviously very smart, accomplished people. And you know, starting a business is not complicated. I don't think you need to go down the route of angel investing and all of that if you can bootstrap it yourself. It just depends on what type of business you're trying to start. Obviously, you know, one of the advantages of a software business is that you're basically just turning ideas into this useful product. There's no inventory, there's no 
you know, people that you necessarily need if you, you're going to need a programmer and so forth, but the requirements are quite low for software. That was certainly the way to get it going. One of the things to consider, you know, and I think this is important is that if you do have a good idea and you want to pursue it, you will need to get some kind of contractual change to, if you're in a private practice where you're a partner, you're going to have to, you know, uh, have some carve out for your company that you're going to start. Or, uh, you know, you take a teleradiology job like I did, where at the time I was a contractor, you know, 1099 employee, and there is no need for a carve out because they claim no ownership over anything you create. So just something to consider. You know, one of the advice I've given is if you want to do private practice, that's great. But if you think you're going to start creating a product and have an idea, create a company before you sign the contract and say anything done within this company is excluded from ownership by the practice. And so then you kind of have your piece there, you know, that you can start building things inside that company. Maybe you never do anything, but it certainly is a piece there that you can use um, in the future if you need to. Very smart idea. Well, this was awesome, Dr. Stewart. I I really appreciate having you on the podcast. Um, I know our listeners will too. And, you know, we're excited to see how our scripter continues to develop. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.